sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, I'm here with Aaron Porter. Hey, Aaron, we're getting lots of uh, feedback from, or at least the people that I have talked with on the phone. Happy that we had a chance to talk with Michael Card our last time together. That was a that was a great conversation. That was. And in the meantime, uh, you you disappeared a little bit, and I didn't even know you had your surgery. How are you doing? Oh, dude. Yeah, I did. I had the surgery. I had the, well, let's just say it, I had the hernia surgery. And, that, uh, is that a shameful thing to admit to? If I don't. Yeah, sure. It's in the nether regions. It's below the belt. Yeah, so certainly there's oh. automatically shame attached to that particular surgery. Hernias can happen like anywhere on the back though, right? Is it always there? It's not on the back. It's on I the mean, front. I'd like okay. Out. Yeah, explain this to me. I thought you hurt your back this whole time. No, 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 no. I strained myself while bending over. Um, so yeah. So see, the core you, you've apparently been was not about a... this whole thing. I I get it now. That's... Oh, dude. Yeah. Well, so uh, they fixed you up. Yeah, it's sometimes referred to as a groin injury. Mm. Um, yeah. So I have had the surgery. Uh, I'm not going to go, uh, I'm not going to be doing Irish dancing or playing soccer anytime soon. No, uh, not for like six weeks or so. <laughs> yeah, I'm under restriction now. I'm not supposed to lift anything heavier than, uh, than, a, than a gallon of milk. Oh. Yeah. But actually, I had so much anxiety about the surgery. Uh, driving myself crazy because I'd never been cut on before. Ever? Uh, really? No, never have. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of anxiety and turned out to be, I mean, that part was just a piece of cake. And it, I also, uh, you know, healed the incision healed much faster and, uh, neater than I expected it to. So now, now I feel shame over my anxiety. So <laughs> yeah, I'm just a big bundle of shame. Well, uh, that's that's great because you're going to get help for that today. Yes, 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 yes. Which is going to also help relieve my boredom, which is the other thing I've got going on. I, I don't know about you, man, but I am experiencing this last weekend was tough. I've got quarantine fatigue up the yazoo, and I've just about had it with this lockdown. All right, so define this for me. I, I haven't talked to enough people about quarantining to to have heard this phrase, quarantine fatigue. I'm sure everybody else knows about it, just like hernias that aren't herniated discs, and I'm just out of the loop with everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't know how common the phrase is. I, I'd like to take credit for inventing it, but I'm sure I didn't. Uh, but I do know I'm just freaking sick and tired of uh Stepping away from anybody that I encounter. So, uh, you know, uh, I, it's, it's, if I come close to anybody as, I, as I'm out walking, and I'm still out walking on a daily basis downtown, and the streets, the sidewalks of Franklin, Tennessee are getting busier. But still, uh, if I, somebody calls my name or I see somebody I recognize, we'll stop, but we have to stop at an appropriate distance. And it almost seems as though at that distance – 
even the conversations that we're able to have at that distance are a little more distant than they might be if we could stand close together. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think it probably makes a lot of psychological sense. Uh, just uh, what are you getting getting tips for? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, ten, you know, tonight is our meeting, uh, and we're now running two meetings here in Franklin. We've got going to have an, the in-person meeting has restarted, but for you know, for the sake of my dear wife, who is uh, you know in the high risk category for this thing, uh-huh. I am still. I'm still doing Zoom meetings. So the, I'm sure that those are texts from guys who want links or information about the meeting tonight. Well, I apologize. See, there you go. This is the uh, the virtual connection. But, yeah, I, I have no doubt that someone uh, much smarter than myself could could really uh, unwrap what you're talking about, that there is so much benefit. I mean, it's been so great for people to explore the face-to-face on computers. Still not exactly the same as being, it it doesn't fill a certain part. Yeah. Um, I am, I'm really grateful for the online Samson meetings. Oh, it's Um, huge. Yeah. Um, Because you get to share your story, which is really important. Yeah. But man, physical touch and physical proximity. Yeah. Like we were, we were built for that too. Yeah, yeah. And so even if it's just casual, I actually went to uh, Jack Brown's this week, which has about a capacity of, I don't know, 20 that's opened. I waited about a half hour at 2.30 in the afternoon to go do some work there. But it was just so nice to be out somewhere just with people around. Yeah. And that's just kind of a part of my routine you know mondays i get to go see you and be around other people in franklin and then being at the gym i get to be around people like they're Mm -hmm. just these aren't deep times necessarily but i'm around other people yeah and i think that's strangely really felt hard even though for the last four or five years i mostly work from my home office yeah. So it's not a huge difference, but just that little removal, it, it felt really good to be out of the house and uh, sitting around other people, sitting two and three tables away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have been uh, rereading Kurt Thompson's uh, books, The Anatomy of the Soul, The Soul of Shame this week, getting ready for the conversation we're going to have with him and uh, here on the podcast. Um and he talks so much about this new emerging field of interpersonal neurobiology, the idea that really our minds are formed and our stories are formed and our experience of life is formed in relation to other people, even without conversation, the way that they are reacting to us and interacting with us or ignoring us. And uh, so I, the fact that all of that has been torqued and tweaked by this pandemic and the way we've had to change the rules of social interaction is having, at least on me, it's having an emotional consequence. I'll tell you what, and and it's more than that, just kind of, Allie is my best friend. I've been in the house with my best friend now for three months. You know, we haven't had a fight. We're getting along great. But shoot, it's just us. 
<laughs> so <laughs> Allie uh, on Saturday was on Facebook and somebody had posted uh, from a beachfront condominium in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina about the great travel deal they got and photos of the beach and the surf. It was just... And Allie just said, man, wouldn't that be great? And that just kind of fired our imagination. Like, maybe we should go to the beach. Maybe we can go to the beach. And we spent two days culling through hundreds of uh, Airbnb and VRBO descriptions of properties and picking the ones that seemed the most. And we, I came very, very close to pulling the trigger on you know, getting in the car and driving to the beach for a week. And you decided uh, not to because? Well, because maybe I'm sober enough to have a little bit of impulse control. Um, it's not as, you know, safe as we would like to be. And one of the things I noticed, like, late on Sunday afternoon was the places that we liked the most, the ones that kept rising at the top of our list, were the ones that had recliners like ours. well all right (laughs) you know so you know we we didn't want to lose the familiar we want to have what we have but just maybe with a beach view yeah with a different view that's right well uh so to expose ourselves to that risk and to incur all of that expense uh just to to relieve the monotony a little bit didn't make a ton of sense and so reluctantly uh, late Sunday uh, Sunday afternoon, we decided to, at least for now, postpone the trip. Well, I'm going to touch on what you said from Kurt's books. Yeah. That our, our brains are always forming just with our environment around us. Yes. And that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, we're, we're picking up social cues and, oh, that person's cool. Look, oh, people are responding to him in a certain way. That must be a good way to act. Like things that we're totally not conscious of. Right. And that can be, see, I'm so glad I have an iPhone that has like a mute feature. Whatever you're rocking there is just, you know, that's the I'm sorry, man. I don't know who's blowing me up, but I'm not even looking at it. And I don't know how to shut it off. I'm t- I, I have no idea why. I think I've had a few long days. And, oh, yeah, I, I didn't sleep much last night. Because that's usually not annoying at all. Yeah. Um, anyways, I was just thinking that how a person might be wired. Like, if they're, if they're just more naturally... Okay, people have different buckets for their narratives, in, mm-hmm. in coaching, I, I see this a lot, and it really ties into the Enneagram thing. And none of them are necessarily right or wrong. They just are. So heart people, twos and threes and fours, their first narrative is, what does this mean about me? And anyone that's married to a two understands that, that there could be a conversation, and pretty soon you see the shame creep in because that person's asking, what does this mean about me? And it might not mean anything about them. Yeah, um, yeah. People like me who are gut people, eights and nines and ones, we aren't so aware of our own narratives, but we look for everybody else's narratives because we're control freaks. So yeah. the best way to control a situation or a person or a group of people is, what are you thinking? So we're really good at that and not very aware of our own. And then head people are just narrative deniers that 
they're like, no, no, this is just about the data. I'm not feeling anything. Yeah. But when I put that into what you were saying about our brains are always being formed, if I'm already feeling shame, if I already feel unworthy of love or something like that, and I see the exact same thing that somebody else sees, all of a sudden that can just over and over and over deepen the shame formation in my brain. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't get to be a part of this interview, but I hope that you address (laughs) some of these things and can fix it first of all. Well, I'm not as skilled an interviewer as you are, Aaron. Unfortunately, full disclosure to our listeners, uh, technical difficulties prevented Aaron. The, 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 the interview has already happened, and technical difficulties prevented Aaron's participation. So it was just me talking with Dr. Thompson. But, but I'm sure I'm you sh- did a great job. I'm sure that nonetheless, it's going to be enlightening and encouraging to our listeners. This is a fascinating conversation from a fa- with a fascinating man. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with a conversation with Dr. Kirk Thompson. Pirate Monk Podcast. I am thrilled to introduce our guest today. It's been months of anticipation, waiting uh, to have a conversation with a guy who already, although we've not been able to connect personally, has had a profound effect on great many of us in the Samson Society through his books, Anatomy of the Soul and The Soul of Shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson is with us today. Welcome, Dr. Thompson. Nate, thanks so much. It is a thrill to be with you. Uh, before we get going, I, I've, ju- I've just got to ask you a couple of questions, personal questions. First of yeah. all, uh, I, you know, I am struck by um, the quality of your writing. It isn't often, I'm sad to say this, it's off, uh, that we encounter books that are so fully faithful both to scripture and to science as mm. your books are. Mm. Um, and you just have this remarkable facility with theological language, biblical language, and then relating that to um, scientific insight. I'm wondering, first of all, were you raised in a Christian home? I grew up, Nate, uh, in an evangelical Quaker community. Did you? I did, in the little town of Mount Pleasant, Ohio, town of about 800 people, and so it was in church as soon as they could get me there, and was in church three times a week. Growing wow. up as a kid and uh, had probably my, you know, was went went to church camp as soon as, you know, you could go and had mm-hmm. my first, probably uh, what my current, what my, my, my spiritual director says that he believes I had my 
first serious encounter with the Holy Spirit, even when I was probably about 13. Um, but then literally spent probably the next 20 years uh, in the wake of that first encounter with Jesus. I think uh, somewhat because of my temperament, somewhat because of the home I grew up in, um, uh, you know, just kind of like rolling through one existential crisis after another. Mm. And so uh, uh, my uh, my heart has been on a journey for a long time that has been fraught with a great deal of doubt and uncertainty and uh, kind of torment, as, as, it, as you will, I, just, just because of my own internal state of affairs. And um, so uh, you know, shame is something that uh, I feel very familiar with. <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah, you talk uh, a great deal about shame in the anatomy of the soul and then focus on it in the soul of shame. Yeah. And uh, it, it, just so many remarkable insights in the book. Uh, first of all, um, I, I, I grew up also in a Christian home. You know, it's a small town, in church a ton, encountered shame early in at least some of its dimensions uh, and also launched into hidden and uh, you know a hidden shameful uh, sexual behavior fairly early mm-hmm. and uh, and tried to control that behavior with shame that was the tool that was given to me really right right I thought that uh, yeah, so I tried to shame my way out of this behavior, and of course, uh, that that never worked. Um, you describe in the soul of shame that that shame is something that starts very, very early, long before we have any facilita- facility really for language. We can't put words to it. Mm-hmm. It's driven by emotion. Can you kind of describe for us uh, what what's a good way to understand? shame well i think you know first thing i I tell folks is that 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 i think is 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 helpful and and this also grounds us i think in in a in a christian understanding of you know just of humanity a christian understanding like a christian anthropology this sense that we are you know we are breath and we are dirt we are embodied creatures and we are Mm -hmm. spirit filled creatures and the breath of God that was breathed into the man as he formed him in Genesis 2, 7. You don't separate those things ever. Mm-hmm. And we often uh, can think about shame when we talk about it. So we, oh, I feel ashamed. We, we think about it as an emotion or we think about it as this abstract thing. But the first thing that I would want our listeners to know is that we primarily and fundamentally experience shame as a physiologic event. We feel it in our bodies. Mm. and we then identify it, we give words to it, we make sense of it, we tell stories about it. After the fact, in, in brain time, first of all, when I, you know, I, I, I give this example of the 10-year-old who comes home with the 92% on his math test, and he's so excited to show this to his father, and his father says, where's the other 8%? Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know... The, the the whole experience of shame for that 10-year-old is first and foremost received by his brain and his body through the tone, through the facial expression, the eye contact, all of those physiologically mediated features 
mm-hmm. that in brain time are happening a lot faster and a lot sooner and are encoded much more easily and effectively than even the words that the dad is speaking. Yeah. And so we have these physiologic responses to it. We see these in dogs. We see these responses when a dog is ashamed, a dog lowers its head, tucks its tail under its behind. All these things that we human beings do the same in, we we do that same thing, but we begin by the time we're, you know, 15 to 18 months of age. Yes. We can pick up the tone and the tenor in our home when our parents are saying things or not saying things, not just to us, but to each other. And so we are already practicing our physiologic response to this. Mm -hmm. And then by the time we start to add stories to it, by the time we, this 10 year old, for instance, if he hears the question, where's the other 8% in order, he's, he's not just going to go work harder to get the 100. He's going to work harder in order not to feel in his body and think in his cognition what that he doesn't want that experience to be repeated. He's doing what he can to protect himself against the physiologic response that he's about to have. It's like having like somebody foisting emotional nausea on you. Yes. And you just say, like, I got to do whatever I got to do to keep that from happening in the future. So I'm going to work hard now to get the 100% without mm. recognizing that that doesn't actually solve my problem in many respects. It only reinforces it, which is why we then tell stories. Well, if I only did this or did that, if I had only in the past done this or done that, then I would have been a better person. And the very act of telling that story that way only reinforces the very physiological experience that we have of shame, strengthening it all along the way. So it is primarily a neurophysiologic event to which Mm -hmm. we add our own story version. And then when we have repeated that over and over and over again, we are surprised at how when someone says, hey, Jesus has met you, you don't have to be ashamed anymore. You know, (laughs) I like that notion. It just doesn't do much for my brain because the words themselves only scratch the surface of what my in, what my physiologically encoded shame has become. Right. Yeah. And this is not uh, this is not just something that happens uh, in isolation. So, talk to us about kind of the interpersonal neurophysiology of shame and how right. this relates how this now impacts not just me but me in relationship right well i think you know one of the things that we people will often talk about shame is something that i feel very personally i like there's something wrong with me right and i can continue to repeat that to myself in a hundred different ways there's something wrong with me and i feel that very very deeply but we have to recognize that those experiences always begin in some way, shape, or form in relationship to another person. Yeah. The message is received by another person. And then even when I repeat the message in my own head, I it's as if like there's a part of me that's talking to another part of me. Yeah. And or I'm simply repeating the relational element to my brain of this shame message that I get. And this is why we, in in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, this notion of the brain and relationships are all part of the mind together, shaping one another, which is why when 
Paul talks about renewing the mind. He's not just talking about renewing what I think logically. He's talking about my embodied and my relational processing. Right. We know that if my shame is going to be healed, uh, it is necessarily going to require the presence of another human being. Mm. I cannot heal my shame by myself simply by reading something, going home, and doing some homework all by myself. Now, it doesn't mean that that is unhelpful at all. It can mm -hmm. be very helpful, but ultimately, shame finds its home in what we would call my right hemisphere's activity. The, er, the emotional side of my brain is really holding on to this because it's been accused by the left side of the brain. You're not enough. You're enough. The feeling of that. In yeah. order for that to be made whole, I'm going to have to have a countermanding physiologic experience. Yes. I'm going to have to have an experience in which, as I tell you, Nate, for instance, mm -hmm. my story, if I were to tell yeah. you my story about my sexual brokenness, you know, I don't really want to tell you my story because the very act of it gives me that emotional nausea all over again. And right. I can't even begin to imagine what looking at you, looking at me while I tell you the story is even going to be like, because it already feels so bad. Yeah. But here's the thing. When I do tell you and your, your countenance, your facial expression, the tone of your voice, additionally with the words that you speak to me are going to catch my brain completely off guard. Yes. My brain is anticipating a full bore condemnation from you. And instead, it gets something it wasn't expecting at all. And being surprised by what we Christians would call grace. Yeah. Being surprised by kindness, being surprised by receptivity, being surprised by empathy, being surprised by someone who is. So my brain is caught by beautiful surprise. I don't expect to see grace coming to find me. Yes. I expect condemnation because that's all that my brain ever knows when I imagine that story, when I think about it or when I even imagine telling it. And so when, Nate, when you find me with a sight line eye contact of kindness with yeah. the tone of voice of receptivity with a body posture that says, or might even just give me an embrace, yeah. you know, two months ago or three months from now, maybe right. Or, you know, whatever with, with our COVID situation, but this sense, <laughs> right, this, this sense that shame is only something that I will be convinced of cognitively. I will only be convinced of it as a rational idea after my body has experienced the physicality of grace. Yes. You know, that was the most, one of the most astonishing things to me when I first began to attend recovery meetings for sex addiction mm. now more than 20 years ago. I went for the information. I thought this was going to be a cognitive process. I found it extremely painful mm. to go into the room, uh, I, 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 to look anybody in the eye, mm. to say the words. 
that I'm a sex addict, which is how we were encouraged in those days to introduce ourselves. Um, but I found that watching, listening to others tell their stories and then watching everybody in the group lean in rather than lean away. Mm -hmm. And then to get that same response as I began haltingly and in very much in pieces, uh, began to offer, disclose my own story. Mm -hmm. Just the shame reduction uh, power of that process, just sitting and sharing our stories together and telling the truth together. It's just phenomenal. Right. I think, yeah, I, yeah. I think it it harkens back to, uh, I mean, I think we can't, we, we, there, will, there will never be enough time to uh, mine all of the wisdom from the first three to four chapters of Genesis. But this notion that God's pronouncement that it's not good for man to be alone in Genesis 2.18 is significant in the sense that our distress, shame, functions neurophysiologically primarily in isolation. It is yes. a disintegrating neurophysiologic phenomenon, meaning that it disconnects different parts of my mind's function from other parts of my mind's function. So my thinking brain and my feeling brain don't want to talk to each other. But not only that, it separates me from you. Yeah. And it then has a field day with me as long as I remain separate. But the moment that, as you, as you so beautifully said, as the moment that someone leans in, yeah. Uh, my brain senses both the terror of intimacy, the terror of being found out, but also it wakes up its deepest longing. Yes. And hence, the more we are practicing on a regular basis, the intimacy of self-disclosure in those contexts that are confidently uh, safekeeping, yeah. Um, the less oxygen we allow shame to have to breathe in the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, you talk about shame really as this malignant force uh, with uh, the way you describe it. I mean, it's got intention, it's got personality, and it's running, and it seems as though its mission is to uh, uh separate us from joy i love the way you talk about joy as as really what we are designed for mm -hmm. and how uh how shame is always working to to steal mm -hmm. that to undermine mm -hmm. it to destroy it to, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind expanding a little bit on that on 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 the opposite of shame what shame is trying to take away from us yeah well, I think I think to clarify too, and I know that this I I know that I interweave the, the in the in the book the language is uh, I you know interchange these things pretty pretty quickly and easily. I think it's yeah. fair to say that um, our enemy is not shame per se. Our enemy is mm -hmm. evil in any way, shape, yes. or form that it comes, and evil wields shame with intention. Mm -hmm. in order to use it to devour us. This is language of C.S. Lewis, but there's more of C.S. Lewis's language in his great sermon, uh, The Weight of Glory. He talks about how there is no greater joy than this notion of how God greets his creatures and saying, I'm just so pleased with you. There's mm -hmm. no greater joy than someone walking in the room and saying, I'm so pleased that you're here in the room. I 
my life is made so much richer because you are here. Jim Wilder and his group talk about how the notion of joy in other people's presence is really how we get energized in the world. That, you know, when, when we talk about this idea that every, I, I write about how every baby comes into the world looking for someone looking for him, mm-hmm. looking for someone looking for her. And here's the thing, that never stops. We walk into a room and we, in our deepest longing, we long to have people coming and say, Nate, you're here. You're here. And shame, (laughs) shame sends the opposite message. We don't want to have any, oh, you're here, please go away. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And so this is why we would say, this is the difference between guilt, for instance, and shame developmentally. Uh, mm-hmm. Shame, as we've said, starts very early in a child's life. Guilt as a process doesn't usually start to get traction until a child is probably somewhere around the ages of four to six years of age mm-hmm. because this takes greater brain development. Because guilt is, I've done something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt gives me the sense that I can, I've done something to hurt somebody else. But also, here's interesting data on research on guilt, and that is that most people, if they do something to hurt someone with whom they have a connection, when guilt shows up, one of the first things that that person is going to do is they are going to go to the offended party. They're going to go toward them to say, could we please patch this up? Could you please forgive me? I want this to be okay. That's what guilt will move us toward. Shame will not ever do that. When I feel ashamed, I will turn away from you. If I go to you to fix something, you say, Kurt, we're good. I forgive you. The next day, I'm reminded of what I did to Nate. I feel bad again. That's not guilt. That's shame talking. Yes. It is shame saying, it doesn't matter if he's forgiven you. It doesn't matter if you're not guilty. You still have Mm -hmm. something to be ashamed of because it happened in the first place. Yeah. This is the story that I tell all again. Why shame needs, we need people to continually come to find us. And of course, part of how shame works in my own life is that, so if I tell you a story and you are able to come and find me and meet me in my shame and I feel better, yeah, I am tempted to believe that once I've done that, I shouldn't ever have to come back to Nate and tell him that same story again mm-hmm. because I've already taken care of that, but you know how it is, Nate. Like the very next day, I probably could need to come back to talk to you again. But I'm ashamed that I haven't taken care of my shame. And so it tends to snowball on us. It will tend Mm -hmm. to repeat itself, which is why the, and and this is why like Trinitarian theology is such a big freaking deal. This notion that Father, Son, Spirit are in this continual, joyful, intense, fierce, attuned, self-giving love toward one another. And they are drawing us into doing the same thing for each other, not least of which being in those spaces where we feel the most broken and ashamed. Wow. Yeah. Well, you're, you're speaking right to the heart of the daily battle that a great many of our listeners wage. And I put myself among them. Yeah, not too. everybody in the same... 
not everybody in the Samson society uh, struggles with compulsive sexual behavior. We have guys whose primary presenting problem is something else. And we also have wives and girlfriends, partners of, of people, uh, of guys in Samson who have their own shame story. Um, or yeah, the, the story that they had that has been given to them or that they've constructed. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Before we just go past that, you speak so eloquently about the the power of story. We are storytelling people. We are meaning makers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we buy stories and create stories that are fictional in highly toxic ways mm-hmm. uh, and uh, rather than find the freedom in the real st- the true story. Can you talk to us some about about story? Yeah, I, I, I think um, I mean this is this is the thing about the Bible, right to begin with that the Bible uh, more than any I mean it's many things, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think at least as, as I you know in the community that, in, that I live with, uh, we would say that, that it is mostly it is a, it is a story about God and his people. Yeah and God and the people of the world. I mean, this, it's, it, it is a story. It, now, all stories have teaching involved. They have, they have instruction. They have all kinds of stuff. But it, it is a story. And so what we, we need to understand that, therefore, um, if, if we are going to heal, or if our shame is to be healed, we first have to understand and be attuned to, like, answering the question, in what story do I believe that I'm living? Mm. I tell people, you know, at one level, yeah, I believe that I'm living in the gospel story. I'm, I'm living somewhere between the book of Revelation and the end of time. That's where I think I'm living. Mm-hmm. But, you know, give me, at you know, by 10 o'clock in the morning, I can tell you there are plenty of moments in my daily life where I'm living as if I don't believe I'm in that story. Because yeah. I've lost my temper with somebody, or I've gotten super anxious, or super controlling, or super consumptive. Like you, the name is, I tell people, look, I'm just, I, look, I'm not just a, a sinner. I'm like a professional sinner. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really good at this. I'm glad. I'm glad that there are only ten commandments. If there were twenty, I'd be breaking twenty commandments. I don't want there to be more than ten commandments. And this is yeah. the thing. Like I don't. It's it's hard for me to believe that I'm actually living in the story of the gospel. Yeah. And so why is that hard for me? Well, because my stories, first of all, we like to, we tell people, your story began with somebody else telling it, right? Long before we arrived, whoever yes. were your parents, they were telling stories about you before you even were born. And then you're born, and they continue to be the primary storytellers. They continue to be the ones who are shaping your story. And that's not just a thing that I think in my head, right? My story is like the food that I eat and the clothes that I wear and the friends that I have to go play with, despite the fact that I don't want to, but my mother needs to have a play date, and so so forth and so on. I do all these things. And at some point, we start to have greater and greater independence in telling our story. But it's important for us to know then, we never tell our stories unilaterally. We always tell our stories collaboratively. There are always other people who are helping us write our novel. It is never not the case. And so the question then becomes, who are the people who are helping me? And who are the people that I'm helping? Tell my story most truly. 
This is why when it comes to shame and the why I'm, I'm sure the work that you're doing with your ministry and the work that we do here in our practice where we're doing a lot of work in groups, we regularly help people understand that the capacity that they have for their shame to be healed depends upon increasing the payload of storytellers who will, with you, tell your story more truly. If I have, I'm 57, if I have 57 years worth of story locked in my neural networks that includes mm -hmm. lots of repeated shame with any number of voices that are attached to that, I'm going to need a number of other voices yes. that are speaking frequently, not just giving me facts, mm -hmm. but that are sitting with me on my porch and in my car and on the phone and in which we are both saying to each other, yeah, like, I just, I just cannot believe my good fortune that you're on the earth. Like I can't, like, like I, it, life is so much of a joy because you're here. Yes. And I know with all the stuff that you carry with all of your brokenness in that space in particular, I'm glad I get to be your friend. I'm glad you get to be my friend. These kinds of things where we are having embodied experiences that then enable me, when I read the third chapter of Colossians, the third verse, and it says, you know, Paul says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Like, that's beautiful prose. Most days, I have no idea what he's talking about. Like, what does that even mean? But yeah. I will tell you this. If I'm spending time with you, Nate, and every time I walk in the room, like, you're attuned to me. Yeah. A couple times a week, I get a text from you. Yeah. My brain, my, my body, like I sense that I'm in your head. I have, and this is what my mind does. I don't even have to try to make my mind do this. My mind yeah. begins to sense myself in your mind, and I mm -hmm. sense you deeply in mine. And so the notion of, for I have died, the old part of me, the old shame-telling story is being suffocated, is being put to death. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ. And who is Christ? Like the body of Jesus. This is what Paul yeah. writes about. You, Nate, are the body of Jesus to me. I'm hidden in you. Like I'm in your head. Yeah. And in this way, this gives me a sense of like, I don't ever go anywhere in which Jesus isn't thinking about me. Mm. What I need to practice doing is actually paying more attention to that viscerally felt reality and this is why practices spiritual discipline practices in which we imagine literally seeing ourselves being with jesus and being with my good friend at the same time yeah are really important because it doesn't just give me an idea that i'm trying to remember kind of like my multiplication tables rather it gives me the felt remembrance of what it was like for me to be on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and having a hard time looking at it because it was so painfully beautiful. Mm. It's that kind of memory. It's the memory of being at the Switchfoot concert. It's the, it's the, it's the memory of you know having the greatest meal of your life. It's, it's those kinds of visceral sense. It's the sense of what it was like when I was there when Jesus asked me to come out of the tree along with Zacchaeus because I want, Nate, I want to go to your house today. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Um, I'm sure that in your many years of practice, you have sat with and loved and mediated the grace of God and done battle against shame with a great many men and women whose stories are those of sexually compulsive behavior. Mm -hmm. 
Um, is there any sort of pattern that you've noticed or a message that particularly needs to be heard or a struggle that particularly needs to be addressed for people who have found themselves in that dilemma? Well, I mean, I think the first first thing I would say is, uh, you know, I, I am I, I don't I, I don't uh, claim to. I mean, this is not the, the the population of folks that I see does not. This does not make the bulk of the population of the folks that I see, and so I don't. Yeah. I don't speak on this as an expert in the field of uh, addiction to arousal or to pornography. And, and in fact, um, in reading a couple of really helpful articles in uh, the journal First Things has alerted me to something um, that I, I think I'm now, uh, you know, I, I think I'm probably um, uh, probably going to change my language even to say, I like, I think it is proper to say that we can be addicted to porn. We can be addicted mm -hmm. to arousal, but I think it's probably, I'm not sure anymore that it's helpful to say that we're addicted to sex. And yeah, there are whole, I, I would agree. a whole set of reasons for that. But like, I would say, so those, and, and so I think a couple things to know is that um, the first thing is to say is that like, this is really, this is really difficult because, yeah. you know, it's, it's like asking a person who is dying of thirst with all, with all you know, all, kind of walking around at any given moment. His thirst mechanism is working fine. He's not thirsty, but at some moment, something comes up within a period of like, you know, three minutes. Suddenly, they're parched for reasons that they don't know, and they have access to a cold glass of water if they want it. Mm -hmm. And so to say to that person, no, you can't have the water, it's not a good thing, is really hard. So to, to say, to acknowledge, this is really tough stuff. This is really difficult. Yeah. Given the nature of the neurobiology of it, the dopamine, uh, the, the dopamine serotonergic, and the um, the, the other neurobiological um, uh, responses that we have, I would say the second thing is therefore that yeah, it's really important uh, as my friend Dan Siegel says, as um, I think you know, uh, Michael Cusick really helpfully points out that. Um, this notion that when Dan likes the, in, in, um, the whole brain child, he describes this notion that we, when we come out, secure attachment requires our being seen, being soothed, yes. being safe and be secure. Those four words. And I think it's crucially important, like any addiction, uh, that we be able to, uh, work at identifying what of those four words are activated. What are those four words that are being activated at any given time for us? If yeah. that makes sense. And for us then to have be, be surrounded with community, like also in any recovery sense, it's going to be how, how can I identify what it is that I'm actually sensing in my body, right? Seen, mm -hmm. soothed, safe, secure. I think it's also crucially important for us to know that we need a platoon of people Yes. to protect us from our own brains. Our yes. brains need a platoon to protect us from itself in its wounded state. That's another oh. thing that we need. We, 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 it like, yes, I need, uh, I need one person, right? I, I need my sponsor, but I like, I need a platoon. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, there, it, and, and it, it, it is rigorous work that is required I'd also say this, that, uh, you know, for, for in our practice, and, and this is not an attempt to say anything really about 
psychopharmacology about medication, but I would say that sometimes over time, um, people can find themselves um, having whittled their way into states of depression, whittled their way into states of anxiety, yeah. um, for which uh, they're actually trying to, to do work trying to get their brain to do stuff that their brain needs some assistance with. And so yes. sometimes it's actually, and, and not, not every time, but sometimes it can actually be helpful uh, to consider a psychiatric evaluation in order to see if pharmacology intervention can be useful in that regard. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of the folks that we talk with uh, regularly, Michael Cusick among them, uh, have taken to really talking more in terms, kind of abandoning that sex addiction addiction language and talking more in terms of an intimacy disorder. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we certainly, we in Samson, you know, we say often that we are natural loners, that somehow that's the posture that most of us have developed uh -huh. toward the world. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. And we've spent, you know, I myself spent years, as I often say, trying to find a private solution to my private problem. Yeah. Just so buried by shame. Yes, right. Only to discover that uh, the only way out, there was no, there was no solo way out. Mm -hmm. I was going to have to join the human race. I was going to have to find. <laughs> and, yes. And, well, right. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Right. On. Yeah. And, and fortunate to be able to find people who, uh, who would embrace me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now to have the gift of embracing others. Yeah. 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 Well, I would but say shame. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would say you know there's there's a couple things about this that that, that strike me, and I and I think that, um, that I'm I'm in the middle of a book project in which we're we're talking about there's there's a lot that we're talking about the notion of beauty and creativity mm. as a significant answer to in response to shame, and uh, the reason I I talk about that is because you know it's. Um, I think even in my own thinking has kind of emerged in, 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 in this way in the, in the last few years. I do believe that we are deeply wired. We are primarily created to be known, to have joy in each other's presence. But I think the biblical narrative in the first two chapters of Genesis are also equally clear that, you know, we're not just built for joy. We're built for joy in the context of being co-creators with God. Yeah. And so this notion that we were made not just to be known, but we were made to be known on the way to collaboratively creating goodness and beauty as we steward the earth yeah. is an equally important part of this. And so I think then that one of the other additional things that I'm starting to see, even with addiction, is certainly there's the there's the necessary uh, requirement of restraint of the behavior that creates challenges. Sure. There is then the requirement of my need to be seen, soothed, mm -hmm. safe, secure. But in my language, and this is where I, I'm different from, I, I, I take the word secure and move it differently than, than Dan Siegel. For me, the word secure is this notion of I am secure enough to take risks. I'm secure enough to move out of and away from the relationship, not a way to leave it, but in a way to then go and slay my dragon, for me to then go yeah. and plant my garden, for me to create my art, for me to develop my software, furniture, education, whatever the things are that I'm needing to go take proper risk in creating in the world, also doing it with others. 
yeah. which I'm sure as you're aware is a, is a crucial thing that the brain needs because it'll be fine for me to be able to say, okay, I'm going to turn away from my shame, but it is not enough for me to turn away from my shame without having something that I can turn my attention to that is going to require mm-hmm. me to work hard enough out of which will come new delight and joy because of the energy that I'm burning and watching new life emerge in the process. Yes. Oh, wow. Well, uh, I, I, I could talk with you for hours. Um, I'm just, but I, I know, I know your time is limited. I, I, I let me, I, you've got a wonderful, by the way, a friend of mine forwarded a couple of your newsletters to me recently. I, is that do we call it a newsletter or a blog? I, there is, I have right now. If, yeah, there's there's a, it's a blog. There are five essays that are out right now for on on the COVID in response to the COVID situation. Yeah, oh, just fantastic stuff. Well, what's the best way for our listeners to get on your mailing list? And uh, yeah, yeah, the, um, the the easiest way is you can go to kurtthompsonmd.com. It's my website. Uh, and feel free to scroll around there. If they're at all interested, there is a way for them to, uh, there's when you, if you go to the, the soul of shame, there's a way to download a free, uh, chapter copy. You can get a copy of, of one chapter of the book. If they're in, you know, if they just want to check it out, they can do that there. Sure. There sure. are the five essays on COVID. We hope to put it, I hope to put a, another one up, uh, here in the middle of this week. And then there's some other, uh, resources for people both from a listening, a viewing, and also uh, a reading standpoint that they can find, hopefully could be helpful for them. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad that you are creating uh, collaboratively during this season. uh, And it's just a tremendous encouragement to the rest of the body of Christ. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Nate, it's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to maybe doing it again soon. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Da 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 dum. Da 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 da. Hannah, hear me, just I whisper all of you. I whisper all of you. Chaltika people, he just Spariva Ladri di stelle di jazz Così eravamo noi Così eravamo noi Pochi capivano il jazz Troppe cravate sbagliate Ragazzi scimmia del jazz Così eravamo noi, così eravamo noi. Sotto le stelle del jazz, ma quanta notte è passata. Marisa svegliami, abbracciami, è stato un sogno fortissimo. And we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. That was fascinating. That answered all my questions. 
Oh, and, and I'm sure you're going to say the same thing after you actually get a chance to listen <laughs> to the conversation, Aaron. I'm glad I get to edit it. Gives me a good excuse to listen to it over and over. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I will say, I since you told me who the guest was, I spent some time today doing some research, and I do value so much how he gets into the brain aspect. I love neurological conversations because in some ways it relieves so much shame when we just know, okay, no, this is just your brain is functioning the way it functions. You need to understand it and, and start to respond differently. You know, the way he puts together, uh, uh, you know, neurophysiology and spiritual formation to get uh, and he's equally you know facile with both languages he knows his business in both domains and he sees how they relate Uh, for the christian especially uh dr thompson's work is uh just very very illuminating i can't recommend it highly enough i think maybe it's time for us to start a book club there on slack with our online uh samson guys and maybe go through the soul of shame or the anatomy of the soul that would certainly be a worthwhile pursuit yeah and boy i hope i hope people were encouraged to get on board with thinking about their brains a little bit because i mean just classically the conversation is you know what's the difference between my mind and my spirit yeah. And when we separate those, I mean, I have zero reality except how I'm perceiving all the data that's coming into my life and through my brain. So I can't separate my brain from spiritual formation. Right. And so to understand how that's influencing me, again, it gives me more space. It feels like it just gives me more space to grow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited oh. to hear it, and uh, I'm excited. When when do we get to meet in person again? Yeah, I don't You're- know. You know, while I'm watching, I, I'm sure you are too. I'm watching the infection rates here in Williamson County. They no. seem to. Are you kidding? I'm sure you are too. Actually, came out of your mouth. No, tell me what's happening. I don't <laughs> have any idea. How's it going? How's it going well, in the state of Tennessee? Yeah, well, it, it, it's looking like we've plateaued. The question is. Is there going to be a spike now that uh, rules have been relaxed and more businesses are open? I went, you know, when, you know what the first thing I did? I went and got a freaking haircut. <laughs> I, I really did. I got the worst haircut of my life, uh, and I didn't even care. I, I got the distinct impression of the woman who cut my hair. I might have been her first live customer. She really didn't know what she was doing. She, she pushed her. I, walk, I walked back into the house afterwards, and Alan just looked at me and just had this look of – it was horror that she quickly controlled. Uh, but, but then it was humor and sympathy. So uh, it'll, it'll grow out. But I, I, I didn't even mind – because I finally got rid of three months, you know, worth of hair that was just driving me nuts. And you, sh- you shaved your grizzly Adam's beard off. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I've kept, I've kept that clean shaven boyish look uh, the whole time. Well, what I, do you I, don't, I don't know about plateauing. I know I 
do uh, coaching with uh, one of our friends in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And so it's been pretty interesting having regular conversations since Sweden is so much the experiment of not locking stuff down and right. letting. And I have a feeling in the end, the numbers are all going to be about the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also think that there are areas that hospitals would have been very overrun had we done it in Sweden's ways. Sweden has a, a low enough population that wasn't as big of a concern. So right, anyways, yeah, yeah I've, what were you going to say? I have no idea what I was going to say. <laughs> it's, it's I, I wanted to ask you, I want to ask you just uh, because I haven't seen your freaking face. Have you been, uh, how, how have you handled like barbering with you and the boys and uh, have you, how have you handled that? Well, you just let the I, hair grow out? I cut my own hair with my uh, beard trimmer anyway. So I'm oh, do fine. you? Uh, well, it's not a good idea, but after we moved, I couldn't find my actual haircutting things. And I just was like, I'm not spending $30 for another one. I already spent that in the last decade. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, um, yeah, when I'm done, I just ask Jenny to check the back of my head because I just do that by feel. So, And as far as uh, shaving, no, I haven't shaved. So I've, I've got a... I've, got quite a beard going right now you got an al-qaeda beard going on or a patriarchal uh, beard what do you got wow. going on i have never been asked to describe this well it's more gray than ever so uh-huh. i suppose it's more patriarchal okay. um, i don't think it's quite al-qaeda length uh-huh. um but you know i'm All working right. on it i, okay. I just i, I want to grow it out long enough to have a good western mustache for a couple days well, you're living there in Murfreesboro. You'll you'll look like a Confederate general. That's I good. know, but the problem is I still wear shorts and flip flops every day all year long. So uh-huh. that that doesn't go with a good like <laughs> maybe shorts and cowboy boots, and then it'll be fine. Yeah. Hey, uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Uh, any uh, reaction to today's episode or previous stuff? Any more suggestions you have for us? Reach us. Certainly, uh, best way to do it is to uh, send us an email at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. And we're so lonely. Send us something. We need to hear from you. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps it for this week. It's uh, so good to be back on track and talking with you again, Aaron. And I, I can't give you a date. I don't know when we're going to be able to get back in the same room. I sure hope it's soon. Well, just tell tell Allie I'm clean, so okay. it's fine. All right. Okay. <laughs> I'll de-lice my beard and shower before coming. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time then, listeners, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals here on the Pirate Monk Podcast.